Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Dr. Priya Sumitran is an endocrinologist who is a member of the Council of the Australian and New Zealand Obesity Society. As a clinician researcher, Dr. Sumitran leads the Obesity Research Group at the University of Melbourne Department of Medicine at St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne, and is the head of obesity medicine at Austin Health. Dr. Sumitran's research and clinical interests are in the neuroendocrine regulation of appetite and eating behaviours, the intersection between obesity and mental health, and improving access to effective treatments of obesity. Welcome to the Orthopod, Dr. Sumitran. Thanks for having me. So the Royal Australian College of GPs define obesity as a surplus of body weight due to an excess accumulation of body fat. And the WHO recommend that the measure for classifying an adult as obese is a BMI greater than 30. How do you explain to your patients what obesity means? Obesity is quite misunderstood, I think, and so there is a lot of stigma around the word obesity, which is sometimes used in a, uh, with a pejorative or negative connotation. So my view is that it's a medical term and it should be and can be used respectfully to describe a condition and without judgment. So the term obesity is really intended to quantify body size and in particular the degree of excess weight that's deposited as fat that's associated with health risks. So as well as BMI above 30, the WHO does define obesity as an abnormal or excessive fat accumulation that presents a risk to health, noting that not everybody with um, excess fat will have health complications. Not everyone with a BMI of over 30 will have their excess weight as fat, but in general on a population level, BMI of over 30 is where the health risks associated with obesity start to increase. So I was recently looking at the listener statistics for the orthopod and I was pleased to see that it's gone global. We've got listeners in every continent and we're in the top 100 medical podcasts on Apple Podcasts in diverse places such as Kuwait, Italy and Tanzania. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. So Kuwait is actually the most obese country in the world as measured by the Global Food Security Index. But I actually wanted to focus on an intriguing statistic that's seen in Italy where we are number 53 on the podcast list. All the Italian listeners out there. So Italy is famous for its Mediterranean diet and it's got one of the lowest rates of adult obesity in the world. However, it has the second highest rate of childhood obesity in the world. What is childhood obesity? Is it different to adult obesity? Broadly speaking, well, childhood obesity is where the child is well above the normal or healthy weight for his or her age and height. Um, So it's classified using uh, standard deviations rather than BMI. there are, it is, it is, there are rare syndromes of obesity that affect children in particular, but in general, the causes of excess weight gain in young people are similar to those in adults, which are largely genetic predisposition and then environmental influences. And as the environment becomes increasingly obesogenic, people with a genetic predisposition to obesity are more likely to manifest it as at a younger age. Um, and children with obesity are more likely to become adults with obesity. 
So the reasons for high rates of childhood obesity in Italy are thought to be due to the fact they're in a deep recession and pasta and sugar are cheaper than the fruits and vegetables or the lean meats and fish that are seen in the classic Mediterranean diet. Is there an ideal diet for obesity? No. Short answer, no. Uh, there's no single best diet to help people lose weight and keep it off. The, the key to weight loss and sustained weight loss is really the ability to sustain and energy reduction and dietary adherence, your ability to stick to that eating plan is the key ingredient in its success. So any number of approaches have evidence behind them and are healthy approaches, but some people may prefer low fat, low carb, high protein, low GI, Mediterranean, intermittent energy restriction, um, they all are associated with weight loss and health benefits, and there's a marked inter-individual variation in people's responses to any diet or, in fact, any obesity treatment. So the, the point is really that it's something that you will have to stick to in the longer term, and so the most important thing is to pick something that you think you can sustain, not necessarily for the initial weight loss, but in terms of long-term weight loss maintenance, a dietary pattern that you're happy to follow in the long term. So moving on to one of the topics I was most excited to ask you about is the TV show The Biggest Loser. Yeah. So I'm from Ballarat, which is a few kilometers away from the town of Ararat. And in 2014, The Biggest Loser was filmed there. And at the time, it was marketed as being the fattest town in Australia. And the winner of that year was a gentleman by the name of Craig Booby who went from weighing 183 kilograms to 103. However, as has been well reported by the media, six months later, he ended up weighing over 180 kilograms again. Now that same year in 2014, you had a publication in The Lancet about the effect that the rate of weight loss has on long-term weight management. What did you learn from the random control trial which led to this publication? Before I get to what, what we learned from that study, I want to go back to The Biggest Loser and talk about his weight loss and weight regain. So uh, not his personally, yeah. um, because I don't know him, but the phenomenon that people can achieve large weight losses and most people who lose weight will tend to put the weight back on over time. And uh, this, this is something that happens to almost everybody um, to lose that amount of weight is phenomenal so that takes a, a, a huge effort to do something like that but most people who lose weight using lifestyle intervention whatever that intervention is um, will eventually uh, most people will lose weight over three to six months weight will plateau and then they'll tend to put the weight back on and by three to five years most people are fairly close to the weight that they started at this is because the body is designed to protect us from losing weight. So there's a part of our brain that controls our appetite, our interest in food, our energy expenditure. And this part of the brain likes to keep things balanced. And so most adults keep a fairly steady level of weight across their adult lives. When you start losing weight, lots of changes happen in signals that are sent to the brain. So hormone that's produced from your fat that tells the brain how much fat we have stored declines and 
There are lots of hormones that are produced in the gut in response to what we're eating and how much we're eating. All of that information is sent to the brain to tell the brain how much energy is coming in in the form of food and how much energy we have stored. And when we start losing weight, there are big changes in those signals and so the brain gets the message that we're losing weight and so it makes changes in our appetite our energy expenditure to try and help us stop the weight loss and try and help us restore back to the weight that we were before and so it's very hard for most people to keep the weight off you can keep it off but it's a lot harder than people expect because it takes constant adherence and attention to what you're eating and how much energy you're burning in the form of physical activity, how much you're eating during a time when you're tending to be feeling hungrier than you were before, you're more interested in food than you were before, your body's burning less energy than it was before, you might live in an environment where food is everywhere and so it's really hard to keep the weight off. So in addition to losing weight, it's almost, which is hard itself, it's almost harder to keep it off. To keep it off. That's almost the hard yeah, part. Yeah, so it's not weight. it's exactly so so the hard part isn't over at the end of the weight loss. The hard part is continuing to keep it off in the long term. When you say long term, how long do you mean? Like as long for the rest of your life or is there you know, say a twelve month period where your sort of brain maybe resets its calibration or something like that? There is no evidence at the moment that we can reset our calibration. So we have studies looking out as far as six years. And in fact, a study of the US Biggest Loser contestants followed them up six years later and showed that their energy expenditure corrected for their new body size was still far below. So around 500 calories a day on average below what would be expected for a person of that size who hadn't lost weight. So we know out to six years at least that the brain doesn't reset itself and that's probably as long as it's been studied but knowing that people who for example have had weight loss surgery years before who then have it reversed because uh, for, for some reason in the many years later often those people will tend to start putting the weight back on so it, it really does seem like it's a long-term phenomenon. Mm. And while we're on the subject of, um, of time frames, so The Biggest Loser is only, you know, it's only on TV for a couple of, you know, maybe a month or two. And it's, a, you know, it's a classic example of rapid weight loss. The, the Commando and, and that other Michelle Bridges, they, you know, put the contestants through some pretty intense stuff and they smash the weight off. How does that differ to, say, gradually losing weight? So that was the subject of the Lancet paper that um, we were going to come back to. So that paper was specifically designed to look at the question of does the rate of weight loss matter in terms of putting it back on because there's a very common perception and in fact before we did that study we had sent a survey out to all dietitians around Australia and close to 99% of them said that they wouldn't recommend a, a rapid weight loss program because they believed that rapid weight loss was more likely to lead to weight regain. And so the purpose of this study was to examine that question and we took 200 people and 
uh, allocated half of them to lose weight gradually over nine months and half of them to lose the same amount of weight rapidly over three months using a very low energy diet, which is a meal replacement diet that's supplemented to contain all the vitamins and minerals that you need when you're losing weight quickly. And then we followed them up for three years afterwards, having lost the same amount of weight over a shorter or long period. And so the three main findings of that study were that firstly, people were more likely to reach their target weight loss using the rapid diet. So we asked them to aim for 15% weight loss and a larger number of them achieved that on the rapid diet than the gradual diet. People found the rapid diet easier. So more people dropped out of the gradual diet because they found it too hard compared to the meal replacement diet. When you say dropped out, you mean lost to follow up in the study? Yeah, so discontinued participation yeah. because they, they thought that the, the diet was too hard for them to continue to yeah. follow. And uh, the, the key finding was that the rate of weight regain over the subsequent three years was exactly the same, whether or not they lost the weight rapidly or gradually. So most people did put on weight over the, the few years, but the rate of regain and the amount of regain was exactly the same. You mentioned dietitians. Do you work closely with dietitians? Do you, do you think it's important, say, in a general practice setting to refer people to dietitians? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, I think there are many chronic health conditions, including obesity, including diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, lots of things where dietary changes or optimal diets uh, will help people have healthier lives and dietitians have the expertise to recommend uh, what dietary patterns would be most beneficial for, for the patients based on for, for people basically based on what their what their preferences and their lifestyle is which their medical person be it a GP or a specialist wouldn't necessarily have the expertise to do that so yeah dietitians are really important particularly for chronic disease management just uh i can't let ararat be shamed as the fattest town in australia because they no longer have that crown they've shed that uh along with some of the weight in the tv show that now that title of the fattest town in australia was recently awarded to tamworth in new south wales the country music capital 63.3 percent of adults in tamworth are regarded as obese and that's in a population of 77,000. And we mentioned obesogenic environments and I was looking on Google Maps to see what sort of environment they've got up there in Tamworth. And they've got three McDonald's, three Subways, two Red Roosters, two Domino's pizzas, one KFC, one Hungry Jack's, one Taco Bell. And last year, despite uh, what seemed to be like a little protest in the country newspaper up there, they're building their fourth McDonald's. Um, that's crazy to me. Um, but I'm not an obesity expert. Could you explain what an obesogenic environment is? Yeah. If it's not already obvious no, based no, on no. all that. So an obesogenic environment is really an environment that promotes weight gain for any number of reasons, but including some of the things you mentioned. So if there's a high ab availability of uh, high fat or junk foods, if there are low opportunities for physical uh, exercise, if there's bombardment of junk food advertising, those sorts of things comprise an obesogenic environment. But while what you describe is uh, alarming 
and uh, wouldn't be conducive to good health for the population. So not just people with obesity, but everybody wouldn't benefit from that sort of density of, of um, fast food. I don't, uh, we, we shouldn't imply that obesity is due to a high intake of fast food. It's not, it's driven by many different factors, including biological and genetic. Of course, environment is important, social circumstances, uh, psychology, lots of things are important, but no factor in isolation can cause obesity. So for example, a person without a genetic predisposition to obesity wouldn't develop obesity, even in an obesogenic environment. If you took, say, 100 people and you lined them up in order of biggest to smallest, and then you move them to an environment where uh, there was very little food and they had to exercise a lot, they would all lose weight, but they would still be, they'd still be in the same order if you line them up from biggest to smallest. And if you move them all to an obesogenic environment, they would all gain weight. But the people that weren't genetically predisposed to obesity wouldn't gain very much, and the people that were would gain quite a lot. So it's not just the environment. Without the other predisposition, it won't have such an impact. Okay, that's very interesting. So it's not one thing. It's, it's not one like thing. It's like a lot of chronic health conditions. It's multifactorial. Yeah. So you recently had a publication in one of the high-impact portfolio of nature journals discussing hormones that we've learned about in medical school, like ghrelin, cholecystokinin, and glucagon-like peptide number one. So the paper that I mentioned is titled Potential Gut-Brain Mechanisms Behind Adverse Mental Health Outcomes of Bariatric Surgery. And I'll add a link to this paper and also the Lancet one in the publication notes for this episode. So med students might be familiar with bariatric surgery interventions like sleeve gastrectomies or Roux-en-Y gastric bypasses. But what are some of the medical strategies that you use in your obesity clinic? Is the underlying principle for weight loss as simple as eat less calories than what your body burns? The underlying principle, yes, is that in order to lose weight, you do have to eat less calories than what your body burns. But what that means is different for everybody. Not everybody burns the same amount, for example. Not everybody finds it easy to eat less than what they burn. But So the, the strategies that we use to try and help people eat less than they burn are using calorie-restricted diets, but because of those changes that happen in the body when people lose weight that we talked about earlier, it's normal to feel hungry when you're trying to lose weight and keep it off. And so often we use additional strategies like appetite reducing medications or like bariatric surgery as tools to help reduce people's hunger or help them feel fuller so that they can adhere to their um, eating plan and exercise in order to keep the weight off. Is there a link between obesity and adverse mental health outcomes like depression, anxiety or increased use of alcohol and other drugs? There's certainly close links between obesity and adverse mental health. So they're both very common and so they frequently coexist. And for reasons that we don't really understand, there's a bi-directional relationship between obesity and major depressive disorder. So each condition increases the risk of developing the other. And the risk of obesity is about twice as common in people with schizophrenia, for example, as, as the general population. Part of that is related to the fact that many medications used to treat 
mental illnesses, particularly things like second generation antipsychotics. Um, and some antidepressants and mood stabilizing medications can cause weight gain and glucose intolerance. So that's one issue where obesity and mental illness are linked. What that paper that you referred to was about was specifically about mental health adverse outcomes after bariatric surgery. So although overall the symptoms and prevalence of depression are lower and well-being is higher after surgery induced weight loss, recent studies have identified a two to threefold increased risk of mental health service use and a four to five-fold increase in self-harm and suicide after certain types of bariatric surgery. And we don't understand why this is. It's likely to be for various reasons and we're not going to be able to find a single reason, but it's likely because people have high rates of mental illness in the population. Things change a lot after surgery, so changes in metabolism of alcohol and drugs. Lots of social things change. It's quite common to have relationship changes after surgery. There are often complications of surgery or problems related to body image and um, excess skin, for example. Often, even though people lose a lot of weight after surgery, some of the other things that were causing unhappiness before are still there. But our, uh, my theory uh, with, with uh, the group of people that um, co-authored this paper is that actually there are lots of changes in the way that the gut communicates with the brain after surgery that help people feel fuller and less hungry and have changes in things like taste preference after surgery. And these involve a lot of those gut hormones, gut microbes, bile acids and other gut-derived factors and we know that many of these things are involved not only in their primary role but also in uh, mood and behavior and so this is something that we need to look at more closely as a potential um, contributor to mental health uh, outcomes after surgery. Fascinating so there's a lot more to learn in that area by the sounds of it. Yeah. It would be uh, at this point in the in the conversation. You know, we've we've touched on mental health and the healthy at any size movement is something that's becoming a little bit more prevalent. We haven't had a whole lot of exposure to it, if any, during medical school. But it's certainly something that I've probably seen on maybe things like Instagram or or just generally have heard about it in discussions. And that's a really about body positivity. I think that that sort of thing, the healthy at any size movement. As an expert in obesity management, how do you feel about that? Health at any size advocates for a weight neutral approach to health improvement. And I think it's largely come from the fields of body image and eating disorders where the detrimental effects of over-concern about body weight are well recognized. And so there are many points on which I really agree, you know, that, that overlap between treatment of obesity and health in any size. So that is that at all body sizes, it's possible for people to take steps to improve their health and that equitable access should be available to people of all body sizes. There's an urgent need to reduce weight stigma and discrimination against people with obesity in society because all people, regardless of their body size, should be equally respected and cared for. And it's true that a body mass index alone isn't enough to indicate an individual person's health and health risks. 
But I do accept the evidence that obesity is a, a chronic health issue. And so criticizing the use of medical support for uh, weight loss risks increasing stigma and adding to public confusion. And so I think we need to have respect for the, diver the diversity in people's wishes for support in managing their health and their weight and people with obesity who want to lose weight should be supported to do so. Okay, so the orthopod listeners have learned a lot about obesity today and I'd like to touch briefly on musculoskeletal health because that's after all what um, SOMA Society and the podcast is all about. So as part of a team led by Professor Kim Bennell, you recently won a $1 million grant for a study titled Hip Health, an exercise and weight loss telehealth program to improve outcomes for Australians living with hip osteoarthritis. Now we've spoken to lots of um, orthopedic surgeons and rheumatologists and other experts in osteoarthritis, but not necessarily someone with your training in obesity management. So from your perspective, what do you hope to achieve from this study and how important is exercise and weight management for people with osteoarthritis? Exercise is, and weight management are important for people with osteoarthritis. Clinical guidelines recommend exercise and weight loss as first-line management of osteoarthritis. Exercise in particular reduces pain and increases function. But although weight loss is recommended in practice guidelines, there's not much evidence supporting its efficacy in improving pain and function separate from exercise um, and also how much weight loss is required, for example. Um, so this particular study is one of a series of studies we're collaborating on together, looking at a telehealth delivered exercise and weight loss intervention for people with osteoarthritis. So we've already completed a study in partnership with Medibank Private, comparing the clinical and cost effectiveness of an uh, exercise and weight loss versus exercise versus control intervention in people with painful knee osteoarthritis and overweight or obesity. And the weight loss approach was adapted from the approach that we use in the clinic here, which is the very low energy diet. And that study found that weight loss of around 10% plus exercise was better than exercise alone, which was better than no intervention for pain and physical function at six to 12 months. So that's been rolled out by Medibank to its members. And so this hip health study will examine a similar concept, but in people with painful hip osteoarthritis and in a real world setting with longer follow-up. Because the major problem, this telehealth delivered intervention is important because the major problem of weight management is access to care and access to medical specialist care. So an allied health delivered telehealth intervention will broaden access to management. Thank you so much for that today, Dr. Sumitran. Hopefully people have got a lot out of that and hopefully we can hear from you again soon about the hip health study. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at Soma Grad Group or on our website, somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.